Well, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, thank you for braving lovely Washington weather. Uh, we uh, are discussing today justice mechanisms in the Syrian conflict, impunity under scrutiny. Uh, my name is Faisal Itani. I'm a resident fellow at the Atlantic Council's Rafiq Hariri Center for the Middle East. And joining me today are Dr. William Wiley, Ambassador and the Honorable Stephen Rapp, and Dr. Rolf Mujinish. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Excellent. You uh, have their uh, illustrious biographies, so I won't read them in great detail. Uh, but to summarize, Dr. Wiley is the founder and director of the Commission for International Justice and Accountability. This organization investigates war crimes and atrocities and crimes against humanity in Syria. Ambassador Rapp is a former U.S. Ambassador at Large for war crimes issues. And Dr. Mutzinich is the Deputy Chairman for Foreign Policy, Defense, and Human Rights for the Social Democratic Parliamentary Group in the German Parliament. Now, this will be a conversation between myself and the guests rather than a series of pre-prepared remarks. After that, the audience will have a chance to pose some questions of their own. We'll be tweeting this event on uh, at AC Mideast live and, at ha and on the hashtag AC Syria. Now, Dr. Muzinich's remarks will be in German. Headsets are provided for a live simultaneous translation. If you will turn it to channel eight, you'll be able to hear that. We've got plenty of ground to cover, so uh, I will not be wasting too much time uh, lecturing about the situation in Syria or, or the atrocities therein. Uh, I do want to say that I think uh, the recent and ongoing Vienna diplomatic track makes this an especially timely discussion. Now, given the sheer scale and intensity of murder and rape and torture that's characterized this Syrian conflict, uh, one wonders how we can even begin to reconcile the need for a peaceful resolution with uh, the issues of justice and accountability. So on that note, and without uh, further ado, let me pose a, a question to you, Dr. Wiley, to get us started. If you could give us an idea operationally of what the landscape is like, how does the commission conduct its investigations into atrocities and violations going on in Syria? Well, the, uh, thank you very much, uh, first of all, to, to the, the council for having us, and of course to Friedrich uh, Eber Stiftung for, for of course uh, hosting this. Um, in terms of the CIJA, what the CIJA is a is a unique uh, body and, and unprecedented at uh, this point, insofar as it, it does what public institutions um, uh, would normally do. Um, in a nutshell, we build uh, first and foremost we build cases with an eye to criminal prosecution at the international level um, at such time as, as, as um, a body emerges, should emerge, or will emerge with jurisdiction over the war crimes and crimes against humanity being perpetrated in Syria. So to that end, we're not an advocacy organization. We don't, uh, and paradoxically, we don't spend a lot of time, if you will, documenting crimes. Um, our focus is on the uh, rebuilding the structures of the perpetrating institutions, whether it's the Syrian regime, institutions, military, security, intelligence organs, or uh, elements of the armed opposition. And um, this, uh, this work is analytically driven. Um, we're uh, divided between a headquarters in Europe and a very large uh, uh, presence, uh, field presence uh, in, in Syria. 
um, essentially investigators or collectors of information and evidence uh, um, in the field. Uh, uh, so the first cases of the CIJ were completed early this year. Um, there's 24 suspects between those three cases. They're built around uh, Syrian regime detention operations. And I suppose what's interesting in the context of the current discussion, uh, both in this room and indeed uh, uh, politically and diplomatically, is that um, the current president of Syria is one of the suspects in those files. And that case is built to a criminal law standard. The, myself and the other leadership of the CIJA have all come from the system of international criminal justice where we worked in various courts and tribunals in different capacities. And um, so I think I'll leave it at that by way of an introduction. Yeah. Okay, uh, uh, let me just ask you one sort of follow-up question. To what degree is there compelling evidence that can be used now, regardless of the trajectory of the conflict and the diplomatic negotiations? Well, I think to some degree, my colleagues to my left uh, are, are better equipped to, to answer that question or, or would like to add to that. I guess I'm trying to get a, yeah. a, a feel for the threshold of yeah. evidence. Well, we have, we started this work in 2011. Um, we're a very big organization and we're, we're quite well funded by various states um, uh, as well as the European Union. And we collect, if we speak about uh, Syrian regime, we collect very large volumes of, of information and evidence relevant to the regime structures and regime offenses. So by way of an example, we, we've extracted from Syria six or 700,000 pages of documentation uh, generated by regime um, uh, elements, security, uh, intelligence uh, agencies, and, and military forces in particular. And whilst we use that first and foremost to, to build our case files, and, and indeed the strength of the case against, for example, President Assad is rooted very much in that documentation. Um, um, there's a number of additional applications that we use or have developed in support of state authorities. Um, and the two main ones, I think, for, for the purposes of our discussion today is one, to provide support for uh, national prosecutor prosecutorial authorities that, that are charged with um, prosecuting uh, war crimes and crimes against humanity where the perpetrators are found in North America or in Europe. We're aware, if we speak about the Syrian regime, of some fairly high-level uh, Syrian perpetrators um, from security intelligence organs who are already present, present in the Schengen zone. Um, and uh, we also have built a, a names database of Syrian regime officials, um, basically extracting the names uh, manually uh, for technical reasons from the document collection. So that database has right now over 500,000 names in it, and we add about 6,000 names a day. Um, that's in fact funded by uh, the German state. Um, and that's a, a tool that can be used uh, for the screening of uh, asylum and, and, and refugee um, mm -hmm. applicants. So it can support, I suppose, um, national refugee policy and, and, and indeed uh, national security policies. Well, thank you. Actually, I'm going to jump back on that issue uh, a bit later on about the refugee issue. Uh, but first, I'd like to shift gears a bit and ask uh, 
Ambassador, uh, Ambassador Rapp, a, a couple of questions at the higher level. Let's talk again about Vienna and the political process going, going on right now. Given the delicacy of that process, are there options now that can be pursued towards the end of accountability and justice for atrocities in Syria? And of course, the, the second question is, do you think they should be used? But let's talk about the first now and the practicalities and we can explore the other one. Well, uh, certainly it's possible for national prosecutors to, to proceed with their cases. We've already had the, the French announce at the end of, uh, end of September uh, that they were opening uh, uh, an investigation uh, concerning the crimes uh, uh, committed as shown in the Caesar photos, which are evidence of at least 11,000 persons being murdered in custody of, of, of the Syrian regime. And so, uh, and, and other states uh, also have ways in which they could potentially prosecute now. And, and and uh, sometimes that will involve, the, as, as Bill described, one of the perpetrators being present in their country. Uh, other times it could involve uh, their own citizens having been victimized mm. and, uh, and then prosecuting to the extent that with Bill's documents or the Caesar photos, et cetera, you can connect that death, that torture, that barrel bombing to specific individuals. You could potentially prosecute that person, even though they're in Syria now. Uh, you put out a wanted poster, but even international courts we know sometimes take a long time to get their people into, in, into custody. There's also potentially universal jurisdiction uh, for the crime of torture under the Convention Against Torture, universal jurisdiction is recognized. Every country potentially has the ability uh, under international law to prosecute. Uh, sometimes their laws, like the German state, are quite broad. Other times they're more restricted in terms of, of whom you can prosecute, whether they have to be present in your state or what other tie. As a matter of, of sort of international consensus, the view, however, is that states shouldn't be involved in a prosecution unless they have a real interest, unless mm -hmm. the crime is affecting them in some way or their citizenry. But, but certainly what we see now with the massive flow of refugees affecting European countries and, and that refugee flow being driven by the crimes that are being committed in Syria, there is that greater justification to support, to support those kind of prosecutions. Again, those could be of, of, of leaders of the, the or, you know, particularly the, the persons responsible for various detention sites, uh, uh, the, the Unit 215 in, in Damascus of the Syrian Security Service of, a, of, of the Caesar photo uh, the first 28,000, 16,000 uh, of those photos came out uh, were of people that had been tortured to death in 215. So uh, you, prosecuting the leader of 215 or the head of interrogation or other people involved in that operation could be an important thing to do. And that could be done now. You deal with this other question, of course, about what happens in, in, in the Geneva, or in the, it wasn't Geneva, now it's in yeah. Vienna, what happens in this kind of process, and, and where, do, where, does, where does justice go there? And, and we all know, and, and we recognize as a matter of common sense, that it's hard to get people in the room who may themselves be implicated in the crimes and get them to sign a peace agreement. Uh, we've, we've done it in, in, in Dayton, for instance, in, in 1995 in, in, in the Bosnian situation, but it's a, it's a challenging uh, a thing to do. And so many people have this sort of instinctive view, well, let's, let's forget justice. Let's push it off the table. It's too hard. It complicates. We need to have peace, and, and, and people are just going to have to get over it and, and, and go forward. Um, 
when you've got a when you've got crimes like this, I don't think that's possible. When 250,000 people are dead, we have uh, and and look at what's happened in other situations recently, and in South Sudan with with uh, horrible conflict, which is which has gained a sort of ethnic overtone, and in some places uh, clearly we see crimes against humanity and targeting people on an ethnic basis for horrendous crimes. As part of their peace agreement, they've agreed that there will be a hybrid court with their own judges and with international judges joining in them. Uh, and frankly, one side wouldn't sign unless, unless there was that. Uh, in Colombia now, after 30 years of the FARC, uh, uh, you know, engaged in, in some horrendous uh, crimes, uh, recruiting child soldiers at you know, nine years old, 10 years old, committing hostage taking, uh, killing, killing those hostages, uh, uh, terrorizing various uh, uh, areas of the country. Uh, now they're negotiating peace, and it's an absolute insistence in Colombia uh, that there be transitional justice. And uh, of course, internationally is a factor too, because internationally, now uh, amnesties can no longer be offered. It's a violation of international law. You can't give an amnesty to somebody uh, uh, for peace. Full stop. And if you do, it's no good. I mean, I there was an amnesty before Sierra Leone, and the UN said it's no good. And, and when we prosecuted, our court said it's no good. So uh, you, can't get, you can't give an amnesty anymore, and there could potentially be international prosecution no matter what you agree. And, and everybody knows that. So you might as well face the facts. But it's more than that. You can't make, get the political support for the peace agreement without, yeah. uh, without some provision for justice. I mean, in Colombia, forget the ICC, forget international law. They have to put that peace agreement to a vote of the people. The people aren't going to vote for a deal that gives the, the FARC a 100% get-out-of-jail-free card that, that uh, doesn't have guarantees of non-recurrence, doesn't deal with reparations, doesn't deal with senior-level responsibility. That has to be part of it. And, and we've had examples like Bosnia, where you had a very divided society and some horrendous uh, crimes, including genocide at Srebrenica and I think elsewhere, uh, that, that divided that society even worse than it was. A peace agreement was established that was a, a more federal or confederal approach, which is not perfect, but has, has maintained the peace. But one of the outcomes of that eventually was the establishment of a, of a state court with representatives of each of the communities on it and with internationals that participated temporarily in that court to make sure that it wouldn't be biased in favor of one group or, or another. So I think that, uh, that it, nobody, you know, if I were a Syrian opposition person, I wouldn't sign a deal yeah, today. Uh, uh, I can't imagine the people that I've been dealing with uh, signing a deal today unless there's a pathway forward for justice. Of course, it doesn't have to be where everybody's prosecuted. It shouldn't be debathification. It's got to be a plan that does provide for the vast majority to, uh, to be rehabilitated and continue to, to work together under a recognition that there are some serious actors that for their own selfish reasons and their own maintenance of power, their own uh, effort to gain power sometimes, were responsible for these crimes. Focus the attention on those people. And with Bill's documents, you know, we're stacking it up. Yeah, and, uh, you know, we hope on all sides so that, so that that will be available to do it in a way that's not political biased and that, that, that's fair. Uh, it, it, in the peace negotiations, it doesn't have to be specific, but there has to be part of it. And if it's not part of it, there is no peace. That's a very interesting answer, actually. I'm, I'm going to pose it in a slight, the question uh, to Dr. Medzunich in a slightly different manner. Uh, now, in light of the, uh, the uh, refugee problem in Europe, the uh, attacks in Paris, and the ISIS question writ large, 
I sense from speaking to a lot of European officials, and I'm making a generalization, there is an increased, there is an increased eagerness to get done with this war, to finish the conflict, rather than insist on any particular specific political configuration, most certainly not questions of war crimes and how they will or will not be, will not be prosecuted. So how, from your perspective, does the priority or need for these sorts of things, justice and accountability, how does that factor into the European nation's calculus towards this war, given their own involvement, actually, in the negotiation process? Ich möchte mich erstmal ganz herzlich bedanken beim Atlantic Council und der Friedrich-Ebert-Stiftung für die Einladung und für dieses Thema. Und insbesondere möchte ich mich dafür bedanken, dass ich auf Deutsch reden kann, weil ich nur ganz wenige Stunden in den USA bin. Wir haben schwierige Diskussionen zurzeit im Deutschen Bundestag, nicht nur über die Ereignisse, sondern auch, was wir in der nächsten Woche möglicherweise zu entscheiden haben. Umso mehr freue ich mich, dass gerade hier in den USA dieses Thema hohe Priorität hat, weil wir zumindest in Deutschland und wahrscheinlich auch in vielen anderen europäischen Ländern der Überzeugung sind, ein wirklicher Friedensprozess kann nur gelingen, wenn es auf der einen Seite Gerechtigkeit auch äh, justiziable Gerechtigkeit gibt und auf der anderen Seite Versöhnung. Und äh, ich denke, dass beide Aspekte zusammenhängen. Umso stärker war ja Deutschland auch bei der Entwicklung äh, der, in, des internationalen Strafrechts auch beteiligt gewesen. Wir haben sehr stark das römische Statut unterstützt und würden uns natürlich freuen, wenn die USA irgendwann mal bereit sein würde, auch formell diese Fragen etwas stärker von Seiten der Regierung zu unterstützen. Wir glauben im Deutschen Bundestag, und das hat zumindest meine Fraktion in den Diskussionen über Syrien deutlich gemacht, wir dürfen nicht das Instrument eben des internationalen Strafrechts am Anfang bereits für möglicherweise Verhandlungen, wie in Wien stattfinden, aus der Hand geben. Es ist dringend notwendig, sowohl diejenigen, die sich schwerster Menschenrechtsverletzungen schuldig gemacht haben, festzustellen. Und dafür bin ich für diese Arbeit sehr dankbar, aber dann auch zur Rechenschaft zu ziehen. Ich glaube, das gehört letztlich zu diesem Prozess mit dazu. Ich verstehe auch meine Regierung, die ein großes Interesse an einem Gelingen in Wien hat, dass sie nicht wahrscheinlich dies als erste Priorität beschreibt. Aber dafür sind wir frei gewählte Abgeordnete am Ende da, die sozusagen eben dieses Instrument auch nicht so schnell aus der Hand geben. Sie hatten Jugoslawien angesprochen, zumindest unsere Erfahrung ist, dass auf der einen Seite versucht worden ist, auf Milosevic einzuwirken, auch einzuwirken, dass die Gewalt und dass die Kämpfe auch beendet werden. Aber auf der anderen Seite wurden gleichzeitig auch bereits sozusagen für das internationale Verfahren auch Fakten festgestellt. Und ich glaube, das ist ein sehr erfolgreicher Weg. Und ich finde, es gehört auch zur Zivilisierung der internationalen Politik dazu, dass Recht ein ganz wichtiges Wirkungsinstrument ist für wirklich dann später eine Gesellschaft, die ja auch wieder zusammenfinden muss. Zweiter Aspekt, weil Sie das angesprochen haben, wenn ich das noch sagen darf. Ich komme aus einer Stadt in Deutschland, Köln, Cologne, eine Million Einwohner. 
Jede Woche kommen zu uns mindestens 1000 Flüchtlinge, insbesondere aus Syrien, legal auf einer Verteilung, die ja passiert, die auch oft eben an der deutschen Grenze dann festgestellt wird. Aber dazu kommen noch mal etwa 500 Personen pro Woche, die dann auch in Köln versucht werden müssen unterzubringen. Und darunter sind möglicherweise auch Menschen, die sich Menschenrechtsverletzungen schuldig gemacht haben. Und sie sind zurzeit mit Menschen zusammen in Turnhallen, die genau vor ihnen geflohen sind. Deswegen wollte ich vielleicht auch dieses praktische Beispiel erzählen, auf welcher schmalen Grad wir auf der einen Seite auch arbeiten. Aber nochmal, wir Abgeordnete bestehen sehr stark darauf, dass gerade das internationale Strafrecht ein wichtiger Bestandteil für den internationalen Verhandlungsprozess ist. May, may I ask you one more question, Doctor, uh, about the, this very specific challenge of the refugees who have been accused of being implicated in atrocities. And those of us who follow this issue on social media have become quite familiar with these sort of juxtaposed photos of one person standing over a mutilated corpse in Syria and a picture of them in France or Germany. I'm giving you a specific example, not just for dramatic effect, but to demonstrate that this is open source information. What happens, what happens when a government has to deal with something like that? Also wir drängen die Regierung dazu, aber natürlich insbesondere auch die Strafverfolgungsbehörden, sich genau mit diesen Tatsachen auch auseinanderzusetzen. Und wenn es eben auch belegbar und äh, verwendbar ist, bereits heute, und das ist ja das äh, Kriegsvölkerstrafrecht auch in Deutschland, möglicherweise gegen solche Personen, letztlich auch vorzugehen. Ich verstehe natürlich auch die Strafverfolgungsbehörden, die ganz konkrete Beweise wollen. Und manchmal ist ja allein die Feststellung der Person als solcher gar nicht so einfach. Wir haben erkannt, dass möglicherweise ja auch bei den Attentaten in Frankreich Namen und letztlich auch Dokumente eingesetzt worden sind, die vielleicht gar nicht einzelnen Personen zuordnerbar gewesen sind. Aber das ist für uns zumindest, und da kann ich nur für das Parlament sprechen, eines auch der wichtigen Aspekte. Ich sage aber auch hier auf diesem Podium, ich möchte nicht den Eindruck erwecken, und das wäre auch falsch und auch nicht respektvoll, wenn ich hier behaupten würde, das ist die vorherrschende Diskussion. Sondern die vorherrschende Diskussion in Deutschland ist zurzeit mit eben dieser großen Zahl an Flüchtlingen letztlich auch so umzugehen, wie sich zu Recht erwarten, auf der einen Seite human behandelt zu werden und auf der anderen Seite eben auch so willkommen zu heißen, dass sie auch zumindest für eine längere Zeit in Deutschland oder in anderen europäischen Ländern auch sich gut aufgehoben fühlen. Auch das gehört letztlich mit dazu. Und deswegen äh, hoffe ich auch, dass äh, bei uns nicht nur einige im Parlament diese Fragen weiterhin erörtern. Ich vermisse, dass in der medialen Aufmerksamkeit zurzeit spielt das nicht die entscheidende Rolle, sondern zurzeit äh, in der Berichterstattung doch eher die Frage, die die Kanzlerin für sich ja beantwortet hat, aber die manche eben stellen, schaffen wir das.
Dr. Wiley, your ambassador, do you have anything you want to add on this issue of people slipping through the cracks abroad? Well, uh, I, and I'm really happy to be here with Rolf. Uh, I mean, the, the German prosecutor uh, is, is very active in, in developing cases uh, on people coming from other countries. Uh, uh, twice to the trial in Stuttgart that involved leaders of an African group, the FDLR from the Congo, who were eventually convicted uh, for, for their implication in war crimes committed in, in the Congo. And, and of course, they had come to, uh, uh, to Germany alleging to be refugees, to be victims of the violence themselves, but in fact were found to be uh, responsible for some of that violence. And uh, it, it's extremely important. And, and there, there are mechanisms to do this. Frankly, I would urge uh, more capacity be provided to them. There's a European network that I was instrumental in the initial days in, in, in forming uh, that now includes all the EU countries and, and uh, as observers, Norway, Switzerland, Canada, and the United States that meets every six months uh, to discuss various cases and shares them through the Eurojust process uh, in between. Uh, because obviously of people crossing borders who could be implicated in the crimes of the regime or, or and, and certainly be in, in, in individuals that could be uh, implicated on the other side with the extremist and, and jihadist groups. So I, I do think that uh, a great deal of resource should be spent on that. And, and frankly, we should also be working with, uh, with countries uh, in the region, with, uh, with, uh, with Iraq, with, with, uh, uh, with Turkey, with Jordan, um, possibly even with Lebanon, and developing processes uh, uh, to prosecute uh, people in, in those places uh, under their law, but in, uh, in, in, in fair judicial uh, uh, trials, and uh, to give an emphasis on judicial responses to this, sending a clear signal that, uh, that those that commit these crimes can face consequences. And doing it through that kind of process, I think, is one of the most effective ways in which we fight these crimes. Do you think whether it's in the context of war now or peace is there any what about persons in syria is there anybody to work with is there, is there, is there a sort of international local collaborative process or is or shall we assume as a starting premise everybody there is beyond the pale and then we look at what independent evidence we can gather well i mean there are certainly various efforts that the American government uh, has, has supported uh, uh, through our START team to, to work with local consuls, uh, uh, to, to work with, uh, uh, with, with judges and others involved in the judicial process at the, at the local level. Of course, the, these people are doing their work in sometimes very challenging and, and, and dangerous places, and, and, and there really is no place uh, safe in, in, in Syria. Uh, so we, we've attempted to do that, but I mean, from a but also from the point of view of, of, of Syrian communities. I mean, I was on a panel in Geneva a month or so ago with uh, several Syrians who were involved in a sort of a Sunni uh, Alawite dialogue uh, within, the, within the country mm. uh, ac across what one would think would be an almost irreparable divide given what this government has, has done. But, uh, but the, you know, they're building a common ground as, as well. And uh, obviously any future of Syria is going to have to, uh, to, to not be a, a Syria in which people are, uh, Alawites are, are, are persecuted because uh, uh, a, a president or, and his father who were Alawite uh, were responsible, uh, if it can be proven, for crimes, but that, that, that really builds on people's common interest in, in, in justice and, and, uh, uh, and in peace. And, and, and frankly, many people in that community, I think, recognize that they've been 
bled for, uh, uh, for, 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 uh, for a cause that, uh, that, that's undermined uh, their, their future, and, and we have to develop a way that we can assure that future. Any Syria in the future is going to have to be one that's secure for Alawites, for Christians, for Kurds, for Sunnis, for uh, religious minorities. Uh, and and, uh, and that's, that's got to be an essential part of peace. But one of the ways that we make sure that things are secure <laughs> is we send a signal that if you did these crimes, you're going to, and, and you're really the author of them, you're going to face consequences. Because as a victim or a survivor, uh, if, if I see this, the, the butcher, the torturer, uh, in, in my community continuing to, to act in the security services and he's never admitted his responsibility or never paid reparations or done anything like that, I'm going to be extremely fearful. <coughs> Justice is essential to, to, to future protection of all of these communities. The, the, the tools already exist to, to if you will, uh, uh, vet uh, um, political leaders. If we speak about the regime, not to, not to single out the regime unfairly, uh, I'm not sure if I ever thought I'd use that term, but uh, in any event, uh, um, um, you know, the, it's, it's important to understand that the, the, the path to leadership in the Syrian regime generally runs through the security intelligence services. And uh, it's very important for, uh, certainly in my personal view, and, and undoubtedly for, for the Syrian people, although I don't speak for the Syrian people, that the political actors, and particularly the Western political actors, know precisely whom they're dealing with on the other side of the negotiation table. And that, I don't want to suggest that the CIGA is a solution to that, but we can certainly help with that um, if we're asked to do so, because we have this hundreds and hundreds of thousands of pages of documentation. We can search for names. We have the networks in the field. Um, um, and that's and why is that important? It's important, and, and it touches on the point, I think, in particular that Ambassador Rapp made earlier, is that the armed opposition groups, uh, in my view, you can forget about the political opposition, but the armed opposition groups have their own constituencies, and they need to bring their constituencies with them into the peace process. And, and to do that, there is, uh, dare I use this term in Washington, certain red lines uh, uh, that, that exist um, uh, for those armed opposition groups, and one of them um, I, I suspect, again, we're, we're operational people, I suspect is, is, is the president staying on. His, his, in the eyes of the armed opposition, he is a symbol which is unconscionable. And, and um, um, I have no prescription, but, e but then even if you, if you remove, uh, or, if, or if the president steps aside immediately, or, or somehow some agreed after some months or whatever it is, you still have to know who else is sitting around uh, that table, mm -hmm. whether it's indeed regime officials or armed opposition officials. It's very important to understand that uh, Islamic State, for example, or Jabhat al-Nusra um, do not have a monopoly on, on criminality on the anti-regime side. Yeah, no, uh, absolutely. What, what, what this seems to imply is actually that the higher up you go, the more culpability there may be, but the more difficult it may be re to reach those individuals. So if you can't get all the way to the top, whether it's for political or procedural reasons, do you just go after who you can? And I guess this is a question for all three of you. Uh, or do you give up on that because that would sort of undermine the integrity of the process? Well, I, I would def 
defer to my colleagues, but from our perspective, as, as I said earlier in my, my initial remarks, there's, there's eight or ten men in Schengen right now that, that um, we know where they are, we know what they, we've, they've done, we have uh, substantial, from security intelligence services, from uh, leadership positions at the governorate level, um, um, in some cases we, we can pinpoint within a few meters where they are right now. Um, and whilst it's a, ultimately a, a policy uh, issue uh, uh, for, for, for prosecutors to decide whether there's a social purpose in these prosecutions, um, that's not our decision. But, but what I'm saying is that there's cases ready to go against very serious perpetrators who are in Western jurisdictions that have um, um, the necessary legal framework to prosecute them uh, uh, straight away. And, and I, I really want to look at this in two ways. I mean, there are national prosecutions, particularly in third countries, and, and that will depend to some extent on who is there and who's available and, and who they view as a, even a threat to their own refugee community. Uh, laws like the German law and universal jurisdiction require uh, a, a, you know, an approval based upon a number of factors about proceeding with cases. Uh, unlike the rule in civil law generally, you don't prosecute everybody. You, you find the appropriate case. So I think everywhere one needs to look at the, at the most serious offenders and the highest kind of impact to the extent that you've got limited resources. I know that's painful sometimes thinking you're not prosecuting everybody, but there may be other tools. You can put people in immigration proceedings and uh, remove them or, uh, you know, or for the day that there's a, uh, an ability to move them someplace safe. There are other alternatives you can use, but, but you, know, do, you do want to have a, a focused prosecution on those that, uh, on whom you have a, a, a serious case, even in a third country. But obviously some of those people may be a lower level because those are going to be the ones available. If, if you have a process nationally, or if you have a hybrid process where internationals become involved, like we had in Sierra Leone, or if you have an ICC process, then, then the focus, I think, is on, on dealing with the individuals of, of greatest responsibility. Um, but that not always goes to the top, and it not, only, not always starts at the top. Those of us that have prosecuted or organized crime in our own country often you know, go after a mid-level actor, and, and we may then, through that prosecution, develop information that allows us uh, to go higher. There's nothing, and, 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 I, and I frankly think sometimes it can be quite counterproductive to immediately shoot at the top in, in a case. On the other hand, if you can develop the evidence uh, against very high-level actors, by all means, when you have that evidence, uh, uh, at, at some particular point you make the charge, and it may be that person won't be available immediately to you. They may be in hiding somewhere. They may be in a country that's not in the ICC and that won't cooperate. Uh, pressures can build eventually where you get that person, but it may take a long period of time. But, but as I say, one needs always uh, in, in, at the international level, and I also think at the national level when it comes to these cases of crimes that arrive in other countries, a, a strategy. <laughs> That, that focuses on uh, uh, you know, developing uh, cases against the most serious actors and, and cases that will have the most impact 
in terms of sending a message to others that might commit these crimes that there that are consequences. And, and obviously with, with the kind of information that uh, CJA and that other programs supported by my friends from the Syrian, uh, the SJAC, the Syrian Justice and Accountability Center that the US government and other governments set up, that that kind of information uh, can, uh, uh, can be very useful in developing these cases and providing the leads for the national or international prosecutors uh, to, to present the evidence. Thank you. Dr. Mitsenich, do you have anything you'd like to add? Ich stimme dem vollkommen zu. Ich habe ja auch noch mal darauf hingewiesen, dass es, glaube ich, bei uns im Parlament über die Parteien, die dort vertreten sind, eine äh, durchaus Einigkeit gibt, dass gerade das Strafrecht hier ein wichtiges Instrumentarium auch für die Herstellung äh, von einem verlässlichen Frieden am Ende ist. Aber ich möchte hier auch nicht irgendwie äh, den falschen Eindruck erwecken, die Bundesregierung ist in den letzten Wochen froh, dass es überhaupt zu ernsthaften Verhandlungen endlich in Wien möglicherweise gekommen ist, über ein Ende des Bürgerkrieges in Syrien. Und wir haben wirklich in den letzten Jahren hart dafür gearbeitet, dass es überhaupt dazu kommt. Das ist ja nicht das erste Mal. Wir haben in Genf zum Beispiel unter dem Dach der Vereinten Nationen zusammengesessen und da fehlte ein ganz wichtiges Land, was auf der einen Seite ein Konflikttreiber ist, aber wahrscheinlich eben genau auch das Land, was helfen muss zu einem verlässlichen Frieden, wenn es dazu kommt, überhaupt auch zum Durchbruch zu verhelfen, dass der Iran. Und der Iran ist jetzt nun mal Gott sei Dank auch offensichtlich hier von der US-Regierung als Land akzeptiert, was am Verhandlungstisch Platz nimmt und für die Bundesregierung, aber auch für uns im Parlament steht natürlich zurzeit im Vordergrund, endlich zu lokalen Waffenruhen zu kommen, die humanitäre Situation der Menschen vor Ort etwas zu verbessern. Wir haben wahrscheinlich sieben bis acht Millionen Binnenflüchtlinge weiterhin allein in Syrien, die keine Hilfe von irgendwelchen Institutionen und anderen Einrichtungen bekommen. Deswegen nochmal, vielleicht haben Sie mich deswegen auch aufs Podium gesetzt, natürlich ist es eine praktische Gratwanderung auf der einen Seite über die Fragen der Strafbarkeit und auch eben letztlich der Justiz zu sprechen und auf der anderen Seite überhaupt Voraussetzungen zu schaffen zu einer wenigstens Chance auf ein Ende des Bürgerkrieges, aber auch des Stellvertreterkrieges in Syrien zu kommen. Und beides gehört, glaube ich, zusammen und deswegen will ich mir auch hier keinen schlanken Fuß machen. Es ist nicht eine der entscheidenden Prioritäten, aber Herr Botschafter, Sie haben es gesagt, Deutschland arbeitet sehr hart dafür, auch dieses Instrument in den nächsten Jahren auch für eine gerechte Lösung zu erhalten. Well, thank you very much. Uh, we have just about 40 minutes uh, for a Q&A. I'm going to open it up right now. Uh, could you please try to be brief, ask a question, and it would be very helpful if you'd identify yourselves shortly. You may direct the question at any particular one of the panelists or at all three. It's up to you. Yes, sir. <coughs> uh, do we have a microphone? Uh, Roy Gutman from the Clatchy newspapers. <clears throat> the um, 
uh, what uh, Dr. Muchnitz was uh, talking about earlier about the, <clears throat> the problem of the, uh, the perpetrators uh, being in the same gymnasium as the, <clears throat> as the victims. Uh, if you recall uh, 1993 or four, at the very beginning of the <clears throat> Hague Tribunal, Dushko Tadic was arrested in Munich, um, identified by the victims. And the German police handled it, it seemed to me, awfully well. And he became the first, uh, the first uh, person put on trial in the Hague Tribunal, or first person sent there. <clears throat> so Germany has a terrific, a, a great deal of, of depth of experience on that. Um, I had a question about that maybe um, at least uh, uh, Steve Rapp and um, uh, Dr. Wiley could answer about <clears throat> the, uh, the, the, the process of the, or the, the um, um, tactic of barrel bombing. Uh, that has now seemed to take over <coughs> the uh, entire war from the side of the government in terms of how they deal with the opposition. Um, what do we know about uh, who's responsible, about the chain of responsibility? How high up does it go? Who made the decisions to go to barrel bombs? Who decides where the, where the barrel bombs should be dropped? Who are the pilots? What, uh, and and how, how can you get at that uh, in, a, in a judicial way? Thank you. Well, first. Uh, yeah, thanks. Yeah, I can't give you um, a terribly satisfactory answer. The, this CIJ is a non-profit, but of course it's a private organization. And um, the, what we call the CIJ model has tremendous advantages over uh, public institutions. It's, 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 it's fast, it's, it's relatively inexpensive, and uh, it's not bureaucratized, um, and we have a very high risk tolerance. Um, but in certain types of investigations or with certain types of offenses, um, um, it, it, it's, it's very difficult for us to um, um, investigate. And the two principal uh, problem areas we have vis-a-vis um, -vis the regime is establishing responsibility for chemical strikes. Um, um, and so when the UN Security Council gave that responsibility to what's called the Joint Investigative Mechanism um, linked to uh, OPCW, Office for the Prevention of Chemical Warfare, um, I was relieved because that took the donor pressure off us to deal with that particular problem. Um, and barrel bombs fall into the same category. And the, the reason is, is that um, chemical weapons in particular, and I believe to a certain extent uh, uh, the, the barrel bombs, um, they, 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 they are, are strategic assets in, uh, to a certain degree. And the weakness of our organization is we do not have a good uh, operational weaknesses. We do not have a good penetration in Damascus. Um, our team in Damascus was uh, captured by the regime um, fairly early on, uh, a couple of years ago now. Um, we could have set up um, sources or sensitive sources in the regime, but because we were getting high quality documentation at the provincial level and continue to do so, um, orders, uh, directives, and so forth coming from Damascus down to the provinces, and indeed the reports and returns going back up to Damascus. Um, we didn't want to um, take additional risks to uh, deal with uh, in, inside Damascus itself. But the price that we pay in that respect is that 
certain types of offenses, in particular barrel bombing, because, it's, because they're delivered with air assets, and um, chemical strikes, because it's, it's very much a strategic weapon, become very difficult for us to investigate. So the fact these, these weapons are used is, is um, obviously, is, is, this is quite easy to establish. But the individual criminal responsibility, and that's what you're asking about, for their use is something that um, um, is very hard for us. This is where a state would have more of an advantage because of its, um, uh, in particular, strategic uh, intercept uh, capability, which, which um, we uh, don't have. Uh, it's not actually expensive to develop it. We've thought about it, but you have to monitor the channels and so forth. So then that's where it becomes expensive. Ambassador? Well, if I can add to that, and, and, and one knows that uh, in, in the area of war crimes, and as we even saw in the, in the Yugoslavia Tribunal, building cases on, on the use of, of weapons where the perpetrators say we were aiming at combatants, but we missed, those are, those are hard cases to make. Uh, frankly, a whole lot easier to make the case of, uh, of torture by the regime when you see what they did and their, and their actor is, is doing it. Uh, or uh, sending out thugs uh, should be uh, in Terra Hamway, whatever, who commit acts, and you can find documents like Bill has that connect regime figures uh, to those kinds of crimes. Uh, on the other hand, we have in the use of barrel bombs a, a weapon that's uh, by its very nature indiscriminate. Uh, it, it has been possible through a variety of means to determine where those are dropped. Uh, there have been efforts, and I know Bill's involved in video analysis that your, that your group in, in Bulgaria, uh, as I understand, has 400,000 or so videos that you're analyzing, and this often consists of people taking pictures of the aftermath of these attacks. Now, all of which is to say that it was the first thing I dealt with Bill on on Syria, which was training people locally where to take those pictures, uh, because uh, pictures of just uh, uh, a horrendously tragic close-up shot of someone dead uh, does not prove other than that person is dead. Uh, you need other kind of, of, of information about the shell hole and about other things like that that may come off these videos, may not, but it's all a reason why. And, and of course, these can be great risks that people are taking, but uh, it's important. And, and, and there are various initiatives to, to improve the training and, and, and to improve the ability of videos like the eyewitness program, the use of cell phone video to, and, and being able to upload it to a center and things like that. But knowing how to do these things well, I think can make that information more valuable. Fundamentally, though, Roy, I mean, I, I, was, I was on a panel, as I said, in Geneva a couple months ago, and it, had, it has a defecting military um, officer, a defecting brigadier general from, from Syria. And he said, you know, we've dropped 2,000 or more bombs, at least at that stage, on, on civilian areas <laughs> trying to get to the, to the sort of armed opposition. And, and he said, at that time, we've dropped maybe one on ISIS, <laughs> you know, et cetera. And, and that the whole approach of these weapons has been to hit neighborhoods uh, where, indeed, which are frankly viewed as pro-rebel, uh, but without a specific uh, a targeting of a, a rebel cell or a, or a, a, a artillery emplacement or, or whatever. Uh, they are an effort to intimidate uh, and, and destroy the civilian population. And we've had those that are, that are dropped on markets. We've had them dropped in medical facilities, et cetera. And, and so I do think that we will we will be able to develop the kind of evidence based upon the targeting patterns here 
that shows that this is a weapon that's been used indiscriminately in violation of the laws of war, which require that one distinguish between military and civilian targets, and that you, you use uh, uh, proportionate force based upon the military advantage. And, and, and based on that and command responsibility, given the fact that there can be possible to develop evidence that indeed I don't know who else is flying helicopters or fixed wing aircraft at least that I mean the Russians now <laughs> and others against ISIS now but uh, but certainly at particular times the, the Syrian military was the only game in town and in the air uh, one can I think through command responsibility uh, uh, take up responsibility to uh, uh, to people uh, in the Air Force and and, and on into the uh, to the political control of the, of the services uh, but you know this will require very very careful analysis uh, and and you will have to have a pattern uh, over time uh, and and it isn't sufficient as, as we know because in in, in conflict uh, and in bombardment uh, uh, civilians will be killed as collateral damage and, and and that does not prove you have a crime you have to you have to show this this indiscriminate uh, targeting this failure of the principle of distinction and to the extent you can show that it's extensive widespread systematic then you can even have a, the kind of case that uh, uh, that can uh, be prosecuted at the international level at say the ICC if there were jurisdiction thank you Ambassador. sir Thank you very much. My name is Mohammed Abdullah. I'm the director of Syria Justice and Accountability Center, ASJAC. Thanks, Ambassador Rab, for referencing our work. I have a harsh question to you, however. Uh, you mentioned amnesty is impossible given the amount of violations, and it's not, no longer possible. Can you comment on what happened in Yemen, where the Security Council sponsored a negotiation and gave amnesty to the president? And if you look at Yemen today, clearly the green card or green light to escape justice contributed somehow to the Saudis and the Iranians fighting in, mm. in Yemen. I have uh, one comment on that. Also, if you read uh, um, President Obama remarks at the UN General Assembly about managed transition, unquote, about Syria, what does managed transition means to you? And what accountability inside managed transition away from Assad? Does we work with Assad till we can kill him? Or what's, what's the deal? And uh, my only comment about the open source data Sorry, is, that's, that's two questions already. It's very important so, uh, about Eurojust. Uh, we actively collect those open source information about fighters, and I travel to The Hague. I meet with Eurojust. We share them with prosecutors. I get strong feedback from prosecutors in Europe from a country that has a high level of Syrian refugees that they're understaffed. They cannot deal with this information. And he gave me example. They need 35 prosecutors to do the job, and they have only eight. What are the European priorities here to staff their capacity in the policing and the prosecutors for the war crimes prosecution? And thank you, Faisal. Thank you. Well, uh, uh, thank you, Mohammed. Very good questions uh, in, in regard to, the, to what happened in, in Yemen, and I think that's probably a good lesson uh, in terms of the sort of outcome of, of the overall situation. Uh, uh, the Gulf Cooperation Council negotiated a peace agreement that was believed it was going to restore peace in, in, in Yemen. Uh, didn't. Uh, it did include President Saleh leaving office. Uh, he did, but obviously has now continued to play a role thereafter in support of the Houthis and, and, uh, and to the instability and, 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 and to the loss of uh, life and peace in, in, in that country. And so uh, do keep in mind that uh, the, the crimes uh, for which one receive amnesty, and I want to be plain about this, uh, one can in any kind of national system, and we actually encourage it in civil wars, um, 
given amnesty to people who are, have been engaged in conflict uh, uh, but have, have fought honorably. <laughs> Uh, you know, even even those that have committed what might have been a treason or insurrection or sedition or terrorist act by blowing up a police station or something like that, those kind of acts can be forgiven because those are the kind of things where where they were fighting a war and and they if they were targeting military targets, uh, they can be forgiven that. And, and crimes that are not international crimes can be forgiven. And, and, and there we're talking about widespread and systematic attacks on civilians and, 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 and war crimes, and, and as the ICC statute says, particularly of a systematic sort that those kind of crimes can't be forgiven under an amnesty. Now, where the conflict was in Yemen and what the responsibilities were and where that amnesty led off. Uh, we recently had a case in Uganda, for instance, where they upheld their amnesty law but said it doesn't apply to genocide, war crimes, and crimes against humanity. And that's, I think, basically uh, the rule. Uh, fundamentally, though, the, the issue here is that if countries reach arrangements in terms of what they're going to do and who they're going to punish, uh, and the crimes are not, ha haven't reached a very high dimension of, of gravity, most of the rest of the world's not going to jump in there and say, no, you have to prosecute. No, you should do this. You should do this. These are going to be calls for that country. But where you really do have widespread attacks, where you have sectarian killing, where you have situations where it's more dangerous to be a civilian woman or child than it is to be a combatant, in those kind of situations, the, the world can take a hand. And under international law, there is no way to prevent that from, from occurring by any kind of agreement that, that, that you sign. And, and I think when we have those kinds of crimes, that's appropriate. And, and where we've, where we've acted like we've given people amnesty, it hasn't worked. Uh, others have been felt that they could commit those crimes and, and, and gain, uh, gain power. Um, your, your, other que your second question uh, was? Uh, the position. Yeah, I mean, the management. And, and, and do keep in mind, I'm not in the US government anymore. And my, my area was, was the justice one, though always engaged with people and with our various envoys that are involved in these, in, in these peace processes. But obviously, uh, any kind of of, of peace plan is, is going to provide for transition. Every peace plan that we know, even the ones that don't work very well, always have a transitional government, a broad base of some sort, and then prepare the way for, for elections under a, under a new structure. So that, that is envisioned here, and, and, and that will have to be done in a way that's protective of all of the various groups that feel threatened uh, in, in, in Syria. Now, uh, uh, my own view is that, uh, that, that, that it's a non-starter if an Assad continues to, to, to sit uh, in, in that government. Uh, others that have been involved uh, in the government may sit in, in, in that transition. But just as we had in, in Liberia, uh, there was a transition for two years. But it was fundamentally to, fundamental to the peace agreement that was reached in Accra in like 2003 that Taylor could not be a part of it. His vice president came in and was, was a transitional leader for a certain period of time. And then, and then we had a, 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 another transitional period, and then finally an election in, uh, two years later. So that's what I think we, we have to mean by a managed negotiation. But uh, uh, these, this is a difficult negotiation. And, and I, don't, I, want, I want to make clear, I don't expect people necessarily in this 
uh, in this negotiation uh, to, to establish the court, uh, uh, specifically, certainly say who's going to be prosecuted, but certain principles that will have to be implemented in the future by the transition and by a government that follows will have to be part of it, I think, uh, for, for those that, that uh, have been victimized uh, to agree to the pact. Doctor? Vielen Dank. Ich würde gern vielleicht nur noch ganz kurz praktisch erwähnen. Äh, 2012, glaube ich, war es Ende 2012 gewesen, als der damalige tunesische Ministerpräsident, aber auch der deutsche Außenminister die Frage der Amnestie im Zusammenhang mit der Beendigung des syrischen Bürgerkrieges benannt hat, im Grunde genommen genau vor eben den schwersten Menschenrechtsverletzungen, die mittlerweile fast 300.000 Tote bedeutet hat. Umso mehr, glaube ich, ist es berechtigt, wenn damals eben nicht auf zumindest auf dieses Angebot eingegangen worden ist, dass wir heute im Grunde genommen gar nicht darauf verzichten dürfen, die Strafbarkeit eben dieser schwersten Menschenrechtsverletzungen letztlich auch zu verfolgen. Aber ich will auch noch mal deutlich machen, für uns in Deutschland gilt das eben nicht nur auf das sogenannte Regime Assad oder auf Assad selbstbezogen, sondern auf alle Gruppen. Und da muss ich sagen, sind wir sehr stolz im Deutschen Bundestag, dass wir im letzten Jahr beschlossen haben, und das ist die Rolle des deutschen Parlaments im Gegensatz zu anderen Parlamenten, dass in Deutschland der größte Teil der chemischen Restsubstanzen, der chemischen Waffen ja auch vernichtet worden sind. Und trotzdem ist es offensichtlich jetzt vor einigen Wochen wieder dazu gekommen, dass chemische Waffen eingesetzt wurden. Und wir können heute überhaupt nicht mehr ausschließen, dass möglicherweise eben sogenannte nichtstaatliche Gruppen, Rebellen oder irgendwelche anderen Gruppen, so wie wir sie benennen, eben diese chemischen Waffen vielleicht doch eingesetzt haben. Deswegen sage ich nochmal, wir formulieren in dem Sinne keine roten Linien, die nachher nicht verfolgt werden, aber ich glaube, wir müssen uns schon darüber klar werden, dass der Widerspruch, der es immer auf der einen Seite zwischen der praktischen Politik und der Prinzipienfestigkeit gibt, dass der eingehalten werden muss oder dass er zumindest einigermaßen verantwortlich auch von Politikern und Politikern eben auch umgesetzt wird. Yeah. Yourself, yes. Hi, Sharon Vovat, Voice of a Moderate. I wanted to tell you that in the, um, Louise Arbor was my neighbor when I lived in the Netherlands. She ran a great trial. During the course of the trial, the war crimes trial against Milosevic, um, people got educated to the world, to the media. And it really, in contrast to the Lockerbie that was going on at the same time, people had great respect for the ICC. So my question is, she got to prosecute a big fish. If you don't get Assad, what you're not going to get because Putin won't let you, do you have a big fish that you can prosecute? Is there an individual? People, want to, people that have been victims, they want to feel like someone is, is, is going to be on trial. Um, is there any other names, or not names, but people that could be prosecuted so these things could be exposed to the world? Thank, Thank you. you. Dr. Wiley, you want to say something? Well, I can't, I can't speak to the politics of, uh, of uh, President Putin and, and, and indeed President Obama or any other president or prime minister, but um, the, certainly the, the cases that we completed earlier this year um, encompass not only President Assad, but certain members of, of um, 
his inner cabinet, a, a, a body called the uh, Central Crisis Management Cell, which no longer functions, and then a subordinate body, um, which certainly does continue to exist, called the National Security Bureau. And so, whilst we haven't named uh, the um, suspects in that case as a matter of fairness, other than obviously President Assad, and I believe um, one or two other, probably the Minister of the Interior we named, and uh, that's about it. Um, but logically, you're looking at the heads of, of four security intelligence agencies, uh, the four security intelligence agencies. You're, you're looking at certain members of the cabinet. Um, and um, now we're working on what are called conduct of hostilities cases, um, which are concerned with um, principally the, the way the regime conducts operations in built-up areas. Um, so whilst we don't deal with barrel bombing, we deal with uh, shelling, mortaring, rocketing, and so forth, uh, which is easier to establish the responsibility for. Um, we, um, we will get to the, the military leadership as well. And uh, so I don't, my personal view, it's not an institutional view, um, but my personal view is, is it's very important to understand that uh, criminal justice is highly symbolic. And um, now I, I suppose that for, for those on the opposition side, the prosecution of President Assad is, is something that uh, undoubtedly would be something very, very important. But I think the value of um, prosecuting a, a lesser fish, I believe that's the metaphor you used, um, is, 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 is also very pertinent. And um, that's why I think it's, I, I hope, uh, certain European prosecutors um, will move forward um, in short order against some of the individuals in, in, in Europe uh, at the present time. Thank you. If I can answer just, that. I, I'd leave here uh, tonight. To, very to, briefly because I want to move to the next Yeah, question. but I do, I do want to respond just quickly uh, to, to the Nuremberg uh, Institute uh, Academy established uh, by the German government itself to uh, commemorate uh, what happened at Nuremberg, which at one time was thought of as Victor's justice. But uh, uh, when we conducted that trial, uh, Hitler and Goebbels were dead. Uh, some said, well, what's the point? Uh, uh, but, you know, we had Goebbels and Rippentrop and Kaltenbrenner and others that were responsible for various parts of the of the German state that had committed these horrible crimes. And we did a dozen other cases uh, thereafter, uh, various uh, sectoral leaders from doctors to industrialists. The Germans themselves prosecuted uh, people responsible for Auschwitz and other death camps in the 1960s in, in, in Frankfurt. One can do very meaningful trials and not have uh, the, the top leader who's no longer with you. Uh, and, in some and, and in some situations, uh, uh, it's impossible to get the person in custody. They may die. Before, before it's done. I mean, the Yugoslavia tribunal got all its fugitives eventually, uh, but uh, the Rwanda tribunal, there's still nine people out there. Uh, just because you can't get everybody doesn't mean you can't do something extremely valuable. And many of these actors, you don't know their names, but uh, you will when, when the evidence is, is, is presented and you'll see the key role and the, and the really brutal role that uh, others played uh, in, in this hierarchy. Very good point. The gentleman in the back. Hi, thank you very much. It's been a fascinating discussion. Uh, at some could point, you, could you identify yourself? Please? Oh, sorry. My name is uh, Doug Brooks. I'm with the International Stability Operations Association. We work with the contractors that support peacekeeping stability operations. Um, at some point, there may be some sort of international peacekeeping force um, from somewhere, 
And uh, the question would be, in the past, have they had uh, elements, maybe foreign police units that are specifically focused on going after war criminals or, or uh, uh, other people that, that need to be brought in to, for trial? Uh, is this something we need to think about at this point? Just briefly uh, on that, uh, eventually the, uh, the S-4 in, in Bosnia though, initially resisted the idea of being involved in war criminal prosecute, uh, arrests, uh, did become engaged uh, uh, in, uh, around the year 2000 in, in, in actually helping make arrests. In, in the Congo, uh, the MONUSCO uh, and MONUC before it uh, specifically uh, has authorization under its mandate to assist in bringing people to justice. Uh, it's, it's been engaged in, uh, in various efforts to support the justice process. It's its, its own human rights office that helps uh, target people, I mean specifically come up with lists of major human rights violators and turn those over to the national. It's attempted arrest of operations in, in the eastern Congo against General Cheka and others. So this has happened and, and right now the peacekeeping mission in, uh, in the Central African Republic has urgent temporary measures that enable it in cooperation with the local authorities uh, to arrest uh, uh, generally lower level offenders but, uh, and, and efforts are then being developed one for an ICC case at the high level, but also for a special criminal court uh, uh, for the more mid-level people. So peacekeeping uh, can play a role and frankly needs to, to, to play a role. Many times peacekeepers don't like it. It's, it, it creates a, additional challenges for them. But given the kind of threats uh, to peacekeepers, and indeed we've been, pro we've, we've, uh, at the Sierra Leone court, uh, we prosecuted people for attacks on peacekeepers. It's very important to have justice uh, uh, so that individuals in there doing the world's work of, of, of stabilize, stabilizing and protecting uh, uh, people uh, uh, themselves uh, uh, when they're victimized uh, can look to justice. Ma'am? And Nadine Wahab with the Arab Center for the Promotion of Human Rights. Um, and I have a question about uh, um, international or the sort of proxy actors in the region. Uh, Human Rights Watch just, um, well, in October, released a, a press release uh, requesting an investigation into Russian bombings. So how do we hold international actors, um, not just for direct attacks, but for financing, whether you're talking for uh, the financing of ISIL or other financing of the regime, how are we going to create a mechanism or to use international mechanisms available to not repeat this? Because to me, Syria isn't just about Syrians. There are a lot of international hands involved. You want to talk you want about, to say about enablers? Um, I, I can start. Uh, we have a, a sub-team within our organization um, which uh, is the long name for it is the economics of the war team. And what we're looking at um, is, I think you used the term enablers, basically economic actors who are providing um, financial support or, or some other form of support, uh, in this case to the regime, um, um, in the knowledge that this support is facilitating criminal activity. So the, the, the mode of liability to use, uh, would be aiding and abetting. Um, it's an area of law that's not um, uh, very well developed, but these links between economic actors and perpetrators are, are ever present, most especially in, in uh, civil wars. In terms of, um, I, I have no opinion, to be honest, because we haven't looked at it, on, on the lawfulness of, of um, Russian operations. 
um, there's certainly with our organization, we I think we're funded to about 148 staff. We're quite big, um, but mo most of the about half the staff are deployed uh, in in the conflict zone or conflict areas. But um, the rest are working on analytical uh, side. But we. Despite our size, there's a limit to the number of uh, belligerent parties that we can we can deal with, and um, and also there's I, I think I mentioned earlier we have a, a high risk uh, tolerance, but we don't have a high risk appetite, and there's certain belligerent parties to the conflict in Syria that we have no interest in engaging vis-a-vis, uh, -vis. Um, and um, um, because their reach is such that that. You know, as director, my principal responsibility is 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 the safety, uh, the the physical safety of, of the people employed by the institution. We already take enough risks, um, so investigating the Russians, uh, to take one example, is not. Uh, never mind our resource limitations, is not a realistic uh, prospect. Let me jump in briefly, having prosecuted Charles Taylor, who never set foot in Sierra Leone for aiding and abetting the RUF uh, that engaged in mass atrocities in, in, in country. He was convicted uh, for aiding and abetting. Of course, he was getting the diamonds in, in return and political control. Um, and uh, our judges uh, did, however, require that, that, uh, that we had to show uh, you know, that he knew about the crimes, that his assistance was substantial. Uh, in, in commission of, of those crimes that, that fundamentally almost they wouldn't have been committed if he hadn't been in there doing it. Uh, uh, obviously, in, in when, when you get into a place like Syria, and, and of course we've dealt with the issue in the past uh, of, of arming and training uh, uh, the Free Syrian Army, et cetera, and the sort of questions, and uh, you, can, you can find yourself trying to do the right thing and then somebody commits a crime, are you responsible? Uh, sometimes you can be, uh, but you have to be extremely careful. This is why we've gone through this whole vetting thing, and we have our own laws in the United States, the Leahy Law that requires, that doesn't allow us to train or assist any unit that has human rights violations. You can, and, and sometimes you need to, to protect people, uh, aid particular forces in, in civil wars, to be, be realistic. There are legal ways to do it. The question is whether people have crossed that line or are doing them in an illegal way. Uh, the, the liability could be in supporting some of the things that Assad is doing specifically. And then if one becomes an, an actor in the conflict, if you're dropping bombs yourself, uh, then if you're not following the rules of proportionality and distinction, you yourself could be held criminally responsible. Uh, uh, from my own, um, I mean, uh, my own view in terms of prosecution is, uh, you know, you've got to have very strong evidence and a very direct connection and a very major role being played by an external actor before you, before you have a good case. And, and certainly when it comes to the, the crimes in Syria, I know where those started, <laughs> a regime that wouldn't, wouldn't talk to people who were demonstrating in the street, who shot them down, who returned children, tortured uh, uh, to, to their parents, tortured and dead to their parents. That's, that's where it started. Others have come 
in to support that regime, perhaps almost preferring they had a, a different leader, uh, but for, for, for other interests. And so I, I do think the process, that we, we shouldn't take our eye off the ball for, on who's primarily responsible. On the other hand, those that get involved in aiding and assisting need to be very, very careful because they can fall into the, into the criminal, uh, criminal responsibility as well. Yes, sir. Uh, Steve Winters, uh, independent consultant. Uh, since you just mentioned the uh, concept of the proportionality, and earlier we talked about uh, the bombing of uh, civilian areas, uh, if, if you take the case which became sort of symbolic of Kobane, uh, in, uh, which was basically leveled, uh, in what sense can you call that proportional? And it was particularly striking that such a large percentage of the U.S. airstrikes were directed toward Kobane, presumably because of the symbolic significance. Or now the Libyans, certain people in Libya from Sirte are, are unhappy because their city is in basically the same situation now. So uh, given that I don't think you want to condemn that, uh, what's the difference between that and the ones that you do uh, see as violations? Mm -hmm. Feel well, free to answer that in terms of technical Legal difference. Yeah, I mean, the tech, I mean, and, and do keep in mind, I mean, uh, uh, the law applies to everybody. It applies to us as, as well. I mean, we do have uh, people uh, uh, within our military, legal advisors for, for targeting that, 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 that say, no, you can't target here, uh, that provide this kind of, of direction on, 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 a, on a regular basis. Uh, Kobani was a situation where it was, was, was overrun by ISIS. Uh, even after they were defeated, uh, ISIS is crossing the border and killing people in, in, in Turkey. It was, a, uh, it was one of those kind of, of, of conflict zones uh, where you're going to have a very, very intense conflict uh, and, and you're going to have a lot of destruction. And, and the military advantage of taking Kobani away from ISIS Eliminating that threat on the border of of uh, of of, um, of Turkey, creating the possibility of, of an area that would be uh, under non-government control and where ISIS was pushed back, uh, was a, in my frank view, a, a military advantage, uh, which made the kind of force that was used there uh, uh, proportionate. Now the question is. In, in individual bombing runs, uh, was there a distinction between military and civilian targets? Those things uh, could indeed be, be, be analyzed. Uh, but uh, as I noted earlier, uh, prosecuting uh, for the conduct of hostilities, for artillery strikes, for bombings, and those kind of things is one of the most difficult things to do. And, and the number of cases where we've actually gotten convictions for these crimes is relatively limited. So it, it, it has to be, I think, you know, dropping thousands of barrel bombs on civilians with no military targets around, then you may have a case. Uh, but uh, it, it takes something like that. That said, uh, we really do, on our own part, uh, make an effort to advise uh, constantly uh, when it comes to bombings uh, about whether this is uh, whether this complies with the laws of, of the kind of law which is called international humanitarian law. Gentlemen, here. sorry, you've had your hand up for a while. Please go ahead. Mm. Uh, the ambassador already mentioned a little bit. Sorry, could you identify yourself? Uh, Bernard Graf from Howard University. Um, okay. You know, it, uh, I'm really concerned about the protection of minorities in these areas, and you mentioned that already. You know, you, you say, of course, in, 
when you look at the minorities, they support Assad because it's, it's a mutual uh, understanding. So we have the Druze, we have the Maronites, the Greek Catholics, whatsoever in there. Um, you know, in Yemen, I mean, all the Yemenite Jews left. In, we had a, basically a big massacre of minorities in Iraq. Uh, what I know from my Egyptian friends, uh, the, the Coptic Christians are in not a very good state. So when you say we have to look for, for the protection of the minorities, what are the concrete plans actually to, to protect these people? Because when you have a situation, what you had in Iraq, and uh, the Yazidic minority gets massacred, then it's too late. I mean, you have to be preventive to do that. Yeah, I want to disaggregate that from the issue of what policy towards minorities is and talk about it in terms of sort of atrocities and, uh, and uh, whether that's prescriptive or reactionary after the fact. Do you want to say something about this? or uh, Well, very briefly, the, the, if, if you want to tie it to, to accountability, then it's very important when um, one establishes, the, because of the symbolic nature of international criminal justice, when one establishes the crime base, or uh, to use a less technical term, when one chooses one's incidents for prosecution, um, um, you want to take care that um, a, a wide uh, array of, of, of persecution or, or criminality is, is taken into account. Uh, otherwise, there's a danger you reinforce uh, damaging social narratives that have emerged in the midst of the conflict. So, to, if, again, we speak about the regime, um, the way you would do it like this is, is that um, you would take care in prosecuting regime figures that you're not prosecuting only Alawites. And indeed, the first 24 suspects in the completed cases, the, the minority uh, of, of those men, they're all men, are, are Alawites. The, the regime is a power political structure. It's not a sectarian structure. But if you were to prosecute only Alawites, you would feed the opposition narrative that it is a sectarian-driven conflict uh, and set the Alawite minority up for post-war persecution. Mm -hmm. At the same time in such a, a case as this, you want to ensure that your crime base or your victims are not only Sunni. Um, otherwise, you're going to feed the other opposition narrative that the Alawite um, sectarian structure, which it's not, but that's the narrative, the raison d'etre of that structure is to persecute uh, ethnic uh, or, or, or sectarian Sunni. So that's where you would take care in establishing the crime base to, to ensure you have the Kurdish victims. Well, Kurds are Sunni anyway, but they'll identify as Kurds in the first instance. Uh, uh, Sunni victims, Shia victims, Christian victims, and indeed Alawite victims um, to show that the regime is a power political structure that hammers anyone that opposes it. And if one is prosecuting, let's say, IS, that is very much a sectarian structure. Um, but the principal victims of IS are the overwhelming majority of, of victims of IS in Syria, um, most especially are, are Sunni, because that's who they get their hands on. It's somewhat more nuanced in, in Iraq. We know about the Yazidi and Christian populations in particular, but even in Iraq, the vast majority of victims of IS are again Sunni. Yeah. 
Jay, I'd like to hear from both of you about that. Dr. Medley? Ich denke auch, wir müssen wirklich aufpassen, dass wir nicht unsere Politik danach richten, sozusagen nur bestimmte Gruppen zu schützen oder bestimmte Gruppen auch nur anzuklagen. Das, das internationale Strafrecht gilt individuell und für diejenigen, die sich schwerster Menschenrechtsverletzungen schuldig gemacht haben. Dennoch bleibt es immer eine Gratwanderung, gegen wen man sozusagen auch beginnend exemplarisch vorgeht und ich glaube, es besteht auch in der internationalen Gemeinschaft gar keinen Zweifel daran, dass das Regime in Syrien und das ist nun mal auch sehr stark gestützt von alevitischen Gruppen und letztlich eben im Grunde genommen die Kerngruppe, dass das diejenigen Verantwortlichen sind, die zumindest diesen Bürgerkrieg am Anfang auch unmittelbar gewaltsam versucht haben voranzutreiben und gegen Gegner auch gewaltsam vorzugehen. Und von daher glaube ich schon, äh, dient diese Ermittlungen und diese Fragen auch letztlich äh, mit dazu, am Ende eben auch zu einer gewissen Gerechtigkeit zu kommen. Nur das Problem zum jetzigen Zeitpunkt besteht darin, wir haben den Bürgerkrieg bisher nicht beendet. Wir haben den Stellvertreterkrieg nicht beendet. Im Grunde genommen sind wir erst am Anfang eines äh, Prozesses und umso dankbarer bin ich, dass zumindest heute hier an dieser Stelle wenigstens endlich über dieses Strafrecht auch gesprochen worden ist und dass diejenigen, die sozusagen auch gebraucht werden auf der einen Seite, um den Bürgerkrieg zu beenden, eben nicht äh, sich äh, sicher sein dürfen, möglicherweise später eben nicht vom, Interna vom internationalen Strafrecht oder eben von Ermittlungen auch belangt zu werden. Das halte ich für ganz wichtig. Leider haben wir die letzten Monate, die letzten Jahre erlebt, dass eher das Gegenteil passiert ist. Eben ist der Fall Sudan angesprochen worden. Ich hätte mich natürlich wirklich sehr gefreut, wenn der sudanesische Präsident in Südafrika geblieben wäre, um sozusagen die Ermittlungen, die gegen ihn geführt werden, auch zum Durchbruch zu verhelfen. Aber oft sind die politischen Realitäten auf dem Boden ja scheinbar andere. Certainly. <laughs> I, I think we heard uh, Tunisian, uh, he's yeah. in, South, <laughs> in, in, in Saudi Arabia, and whether he's responsible for this kind of crimes, I don't know. But we're, I think we're talking Bashir in, in, of Sudan that, was, uh, that, that got away, though I do note that it was, it was South African civil society and South African judges, et cetera, that entered the orders to, to arrest him and, and recognize their solidarity of the victims. And it was unfortunate that he got away, and it won't happen, uh, it won't happen forever. But, but, uh, I want to make clear one thing. I mean, uh, as, as, you, as Ralph said, we, the international justice is about individual responsibility. I mean, it's very important that, that we understand we're not indicting whole groups because the whole groups aren't responsible. And to the extent that you prosecute high-level people that are responsible and, and the group itself engages in that judicial process, that's one of the ways, ways in which it redeems <laughs> the society and, and, and allows reconciliation to take place. So this is uh, uh, extremely important that we recognize that. And, and, and there'll never be po perfect political balance. I mean, people complain, you know, uh, you hear complaints in Belgrade and Moscow about the ICT. Uh, why uh, prosecuting mainly uh, people of Serbian ethnicity, but 90% of the victims in the Bosnian <laughs> conflict and uh, civilian victims were non-Serbs. And so it's not going to be a balance uh, under, those, under those circumstances. Uh, and, and, you won't, and you don't prosecute 
you know, somebody who's a major killer over here who's killed thousands and somebody over here only killed one or two people, that one or two person case doesn't belong in an international court. That may be not a case you prosecute at all. They have to be major actors and you have to be dealing with systematic conduct, uh, conduct uh, on their part. Uh, and within that context, one, one then does look, as we did at Nuremberg, for symbolic cases to make sure that that, that, that message is sent because in the end you're, you're making discretionary decisions about, about where to use your resources. Uh, you raised the issue of prevention. You know, one of the challenges I have as a prosecutor, and even when we were doing the Atrocity Prevention Board, is they'd say, what's my tool for prevention? Well, my tool for prevention is we're going to prosecute these people afterwards. <laughs> and people say, well, that, that doesn't do much good. Folks are already dead, you know, afterwards. And, and it, don't you have something better than that? And indeed, there's some other tools where we try to engage ahead of time. But, uh, but, but I do view the criminal law, <laughs> the, the perception that people won't get away with it, uh, the, the idea that if you commit these serious crimes, you're going to face consequences, as one of the ways that we avoid life even in, in well-ordered societies being not nasty, brutish, and short. People don't commit the crimes because they're going to get caught, and their lives are going to be changed, and horrible things will happen in terms of them going to prison. Uh, and eventually, norms are established where, where people don't violate. But mm -hmm. it, it, it takes that kind of promise indeed that kind of threat. And, and by doing that, I think you can have an impact, but it may not be an immediate one on this group. Prosecuting these guys today, arresting this high-level fugitive may have an impact someplace else. Uh, and, and by doing it everywhere where these things happen, I think we begin to, to do that. That's, that's, that's not enough for the Yazidi and others, but, but keep in mind, in those kind of cases, we will be talking about genocide. now. Of course, a genocide sometimes doesn't have as many victims as a crime against humanity does. But the idea that you go in there and basically say uh, these Yazidis should cease to exist. They either have to convert or die, and they can't even leave. <laughs> you know, it's, it's one or the other. And, and, their, and their women and girls are, are, are enslaved and, and sold uh, uh, as, as concubines. Uh, that is a, that's a genocidal crime. And sending the signal that when those kind of things occur, you're going to prosecute that as genocide can be helpful. I would note that on the, as we say, the kinetic front, uh, our own operations uh, early in, in, in our intervention in, in, in Iraq with President Obama noted the crimes against the Yazidis, attempted uh, to target our bombing to stop ISIS attack on, on Sinjar. We've recently been involved in a uh, support of the Peshmerga, which have retaken Sinjar, which have exposed some of the mass graves that now need to be investigated. And so, uh, and we've had the same sort of thing happening with, uh, in another operation dealing with uh, the Turkmen Shia. So uh, actually there is more being done, uh, it, it, and, and of course a very blunt instrument at that. Uh, to respond to some of these kind of crimes to the extent we can uh, in, in, in our military operations. But uh, that's kind of outside the, the justice area. For my part, the, the key thing is to, to recognize that these crimes where one attempts to destroy a whole ethnicity, drive it off, uh, eliminate it to, from a place where it's been for 3,000 years, those are horrendous crimes. They need to be prosecuted. People need to know that if you do that kind of thing, the world's not going to forget and the people responsible for it are going to be going to be chased to the end of their days. Well, thank you. Uh, unfortunately, ladies and gentlemen, we have to wrap up. My apologies for those who didn't have a chance to pose your questions. There were too many of them. Well, you know, Luke, this has uh, not only been very educational, uh, it's also, uh, I'm struck by the fact that all three of you offered principled and prudent positions. 
this sort of stuff has become a bit rare in the Syria debate in Washington. So thank you again for bringing that back up to top of mind. Ladies and gentlemen, please uh, thank uh, our guests with me.